A very good evening and a warm welcome to this service of Beckles Baptist Church here online on our YouTube channel. My name is Tom Fenning and I'm the pastor of this local church. I'm going to be leading our time together and a little bit later preaching. Um, this is the first of our evening services returning after a little break over August. Uh, we are intending on being here on our YouTube channel for the foreseeable future. Through all of September, we're intending to pre-record these services and then broadcast at 6.30. And it is our aspiration come October that these services will be live streamed, that there'll be a congregation in the building and that the service will then go out as live on YouTube. But please keep um, in touch to find out more details about that. We'll be explaining more as and when we are able. Well, we're going to begin um, with some verses from the Bible, um, some verses from Philippians chapter 2 that remind us about the Lord Jesus being exalted by God and being the King of Kings. Therefore, in light of Jesus' obedience to death, even death on a cross, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The great news that we celebrate today as we meet is that Jesus is King, exalted above all. He's the one name to whom every knee will bow, and the great news is that we can know him now and know his love towards us too. That's what we're going to celebrate in our service. That's what we're going to think about as we meet around Jesus' words. So let me begin by leading us in a prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus has been exalted to the highest place and you've given to him a name that is above every name and that at that name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Father, we worship and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice that we are known by him. We rejoice that there is forgiveness of sins available in him. And we praise you that he is our leader, our king. And we ask that we would be blessed through meeting with him through his word this evening. And scattered as we are around the town and beyond. And we plead with you that you would do us good through being together. And mind at the beginning of this service, you forgive us our sins and assure us of that great forgiveness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to sing a song which will enable us to continue that attitude of prayer. Having worshipped the Lord Jesus, we're now going to sing a song that he would help get our hearts ready to receive his word, and that through God's living word, he would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. The song is called, Prepare Our Hearts, O God. would encourage you, please, to sing at home as we get ready to hear God's word read and proclaimed, or you can just listen along as you please. Break the hard and stony ground. 
For our evening services throughout the autumn term, we are going to be picking up with the book of 1 Samuel. At last autumn term, we worked our way through the book until we got to the end of chapter 14. And today we arrive at chapter 15, which paints a sorry picture of King Saul, the first king installed above God's people, Israel. Um, and in this chapter, we see him fail, it seems, for the final time to do what he ought to do in obeying God as king. And the kingdom is taken from his hands. I've asked Charlie and Anna to read this passage. We did it, the three of us, over the phone in different parts. Hopefully that will help you as you follow along. Please do grab a Bible and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. The reading is taken from 1 Samuel 15, uh, verses 1 through 35. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go. Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. 
So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and the cattle, and the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me, and he has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor, and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul said, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, said Saul. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord. 
Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death has passed. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to get to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, before we go much further, let's just pray once more. Father, we've already sung in prayer that you would speak to us and get our hearts ready. Please would you do that, we pray. Help us pay attention to what your word has to say. And might we grapple with its seriousness, with its minor key, and might we be willing to look not only at Saul's failures, but the tendency in our own hearts to fail to do as you command. Help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. It is an all too common human experience to be disappointed with our leaders. It can often be far easier to think of human leaders that have failed than those that have succeeded. But why is it so difficult and so rare to find wise, competent leaders who are characterised by honesty, humility and goodness? Uh, Well, the scriptures that we read have God tell us time and again that ultimately the reason that human leaders so often fail is that there is sin residing in the hearts of every one, myself included, and you included too. But simply knowing that sin is a problem that cashes out in leaders that are failures it doesn't actually keep church leaders from being immune to failure. Actually, in the last couple of years, I know personally people who have had positions of church leadership who have totally failed. They've blown up, and they're now out of Christian ministry. But we've seen also famous people, famous ministers in this country and in the United States who have shown considerable leadership failure, seen them out of leading the churches that they loved and served, be that through sexual infidelity, through authoritarian bullying, through dishonesty in order to cover up and save face for them and their families, or numerous other things. Leadership failure is painfully present in the church as much as in the world. And the tragic reality is that when church leaders fail, there are knock-on effects that are felt for in their churches where they serve. The churches are left vulnerable by the failure of their leaders. And it's on this very theme of leadership failure that 1 Samuel speaks so vividly and clearly. This chapter will show us the demise of King Saul And it will help us identify the fundamental flaws in the leaders of God's people throughout history and even today. And as we look at these things, they should help us examine our own hearts. 
But please can I encourage you to beware of thinking, if you're sat watching this thinking, I have no leadership responsibility at Beckles Baptist Church or at your local church. Please don't think that there are no lessons for you to learn. Because the deceitfulness of sin is not simply the preserve of church leaders, it is common currency for all of God's people. We are all told to be quick to repent of our sin and to put it to death, whether we have leadership responsibilities or not. The reason why the deceitfulness of sin can be so destructive in a church leader is because the implications are felt by so many other people. It's my prayer that as we look at this chapter, we might be enabled by God's grace to be alert to the sinful tendencies in our own hearts and resolved to turn from them, whether we would call ourselves leaders in a church or not. Today we've already mentioned that we're returning to the book of 1 Samuel, and we will begin studying this book together tonight, and we'll work all the way through till Christmas. Um, Now, because we're jumping halfway into a book, it would help us just briefly to get our bearings, and we can do that simply by seeing that there are two main characters in our Bible passage this evening and right in the middle of 1 Samuel. The first one is Samuel. He is both the last of the judges, that's the leaders of God's people Israel before the kings come onto the scene, and he is also the priest of God's people, the go-between between God and his people. He's led God's people well for many, many years. Uh, That's Samuel, number one. Number two is Saul. He's the first king appointed over God's people, Israel. And while in military terms, Saul seems to be a pretty impressive sort of leader, in pretty much every other capacity, he is a flop. The last two chapters have exposed Saul's failings. In chapter 13, his impatience led him to take Samuel's place and act like priest, something he should never have done. And then in chapter 14, Saul makes a foolish vow that puts not only his soldiers, but even his very son in mortal danger. And because of these failings, Samuel has told Saul back in chapter 13 that the kingdom is going to be taken away from him. It will not endure, he's told. Chapter 13, verse 14, Now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Saul's kingdom won't endure. But then chapter 15 comes as a bit of a bolt from the blue because we see how rapidly Saul's demise sets in. It's a chapter that is played out in a minor key. It is a tragedy. And it calls for careful self-examination. We're going to look at this account under three headings, the first of which is this, command and compromise command and compromise. And this is verses 1 to 12. The chapter begins with Samuel approaching Saul with a grave and gruesome task. Look down with me to verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you, king, over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. 
Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. The mission that the Lord is giving to Saul is a very serious one. He's charged with utterly destroying the Amalekites, who were a wicked and persistent enemy of God and his people. All the way back hundreds of years before, in Moses' day, the Amalekites had turned up just after Moses and the people of Israel had broken out of Egypt, and they had sought to slay them, to kill them on the road, all of which had led God to pronounce that one day he would wipe the Amalekites out. You can find that out as you look back in Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25. In the intervening years between Moses and Saul, we see that the Amalekites become more and more entrenched in their rebellion against God and in their hostility towards his people, meaning that hundreds of years after Moses, in the days of Saul, God's patience has finally worn out. This is a serious and hallowed task for Saul, to destroy a nation of people and all the people there, all the animals there too, reveals the real seriousness of sin before God. The rebellion of the Amalekites was not something that God could simply brush under the carpet. And the mission that Saul gives also reveals the terrifying reality of God's judgment on sin. Now let's be clear that this command to wipe out an entire nation makes for grim reading. It should rightly make our skin crawl. But this action was far from the norm for God's people. Only during the conquest of the land were God's people allowed to take such action. And as they did, God was instructing them that they were uniquely working on God's behalf. That's what Saul had been called to do. And we don't find elsewhere in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament such commands. Instead, God's people are to act very differently. This was a unique moment in salvation history, revealing the seriousness of sin and the terrifying reality of God's judgment. But while that was to happen in a unique moment, let's not kid ourselves that God no longer punishes sin. Sin still remains absolutely vile in God's sight. And one day when the Lord Jesus returns, sin will be punished in terrifying, righteous, settled anger on everyone who has failed to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. So as we read of this destruction that Saul brings about, we need to remember that judgment on sin is coming. And we must all ask ourselves whether we are ready to face that and whether we're trusting Jesus as our only means of rescue. So there's the mission that's laid before Saul. There's the command. And at first, it would appear that Saul does a pretty good job. He musters the biggest fighting force that we ever see him muster in 1 Samuel. We're told in verse 4, 200,000 soldiers. And then before he sets about destroying the Amalekites, he shows mercy to the Kenites, a people who are from a different nation. He sends them off so that they can be safe. 
And then verse 7 and onwards, we're told with solemn detail that Saul destroys all the people. It is solemn. It is serious. And it seems to be done in line with what God has commanded. But then, but then, on closer inspection, Saul's obedience is laced with compromise. Look at verse 9 for a second. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. We can picture the scene, can't we, as Saul and his soldiers make their way around the Amalekite countryside, killing people. They would have come across a healthy, handsome lamb or cow, and they'd have thought, hold on a minute, this is worth loads of money, and it would taste really good. Let's keep it for a bit, and then we'll, um, we'll say we're going to sacrifice it, and that will mean that we can, we can share some of the goodness of it. And so, animal after animal is preserved and brought back from this mission. They think that they could get away by worshipping God with disobeying what he has said. And not only are the animals preserved, but also Agag the king. And this one word mentioned there in verse 9, that they are spared, should stand out like a sore thumb. Because in verse 3, Samuel says very clearly, do not spare. The obedience that Saul brings is laced with compromise. And that becomes all the clearer when the Lord speaks with Samuel about what Saul and his army have done. Look how he speaks to him in verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Did you see that word regret? It is a heavy word that highlights the seriousness of sin. The only other place where we find that God speaks of regretting is in Genesis chapter 6. Just before the flood comes in the days of Noah, we read this at a point when humanity was riddled with sin in every thought and action. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. For God to say that he regretted making Saul king shows that his sin was as serious as it was back in Genesis 6. And that's made plain, that Saul is filled with sin by what Saul does in verse 12. Do you see he goes and sets up a monument, not in God's honour, but in his own honour. Here is sinful pride running through Saul's veins. The obedience he offered God was laced with compromise. So while Saul might have many strengths as a leader, not least in military terms, this fundamental weakness of failing to obey God would bring about his downfall. A failure to wholly obey the Lord was his Achilles' heel. I can remember one of the first international superstar footballers that I watched on telly was a man called Marco van Basten, who played um, for Holland and for AC Milan and Ajax in the early 90s. He was a phenomenal player with many great strengths, but his knee was his weakness, and a dreadful injury to his knee 
ended his career in his mid-twenties. Great strengths, one massive weakness, career over. And so it is with Saul. Great strengths, one massive weakness, failing to wholeheartedly obey God, and it ended his career as the king of God's people. We'll think about why that's an issue for us as leaders in a moment. So we've seen first up, command and compromise. Secondly, accusations and excuses. And this is verses 13 to 24. Now the rest of the chapter is played out um, in a conversation between Samuel and Saul. Samuel comes to rightly accuse Saul before God of his sin. And Saul wrongly seeks to excuse his actions. And now listening to this conversation is a bit like watching a game of tennis on the telly or in person as you look from one man to the other as one says one thing and the other says another. But in reality, what we see is this conversation looks very much like a parent talking to an errant young child. The parent clearly, patiently levelling right accusations at the child and the child coming up with dumb excuse after dumb excuse that just don't work. And that's what's happening here. Samuel the parent, Saul the errant child. Let's see how it plays out. With the mission complete, Saul swaggers up to Samuel with the same sort of strut and swagger that uh, a student might bring just after they feel like they've aced an exam. And Saul says... In verse 13, I've carried out the Lord's instruction. Home run, he says, it's all done. But unfortunately, the animal noises that are ringing in Samuel's ears all too quickly show that Saul has far from aced this exam. He's flunked it. And when challenged and accused... Saul brings out the same old excuses that have come out time and again. And he starts with this one, the blame game, the blame game. So look down to verse 15. Having been accused or said, what's going on? How can I hear all these sheep and cattle? Saul said, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we destroyed the rest. Do you see what he says? He says, they spared them. The soldiers, they're to blame. But then we, the stuff I did, I destroyed everything. Saul's saying, they're to blame, not me. And here we just see the whiff of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, the very first sin. What do they try and embark on? The blame game. The man says it is the woman. The woman says it was the snake. When Samuel then restates the mission that Saul had to complete in verses 17, 18, and 19, Saul continues to play the blame game. Sure enough, he now acknowledges, okay, I let King Agag live, but again he lays the blame for the animals on the soldiers. Look at verse 21. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. In playing the blame game, Saul is showing a fundamental failure as a leader. 
because he's unwilling to take responsibility for his failings. As king, let's be clear, he was responsible for what the soldiers did. If they let the animals live, he is to say, now you put the animals to death and destroy them. But did he? No way. He was quite happy for compromise to be laced through his obedience. And here is a warning for leaders we should listen to. If as leaders we are unwilling to take the blame for things that we have done wrong, if we are quick to shift the blame onto other people, it could be a signal that there's a fundamental failure in you serving as a leader. Leaders, be willing to own the blame when you've blown it. Trying to shift the blame won't work and only magnifies your guilt. Saul has worked his excuses with the blame game and then finally Samuel has had enough and explains the crux of the issue, which is this. Saul, obedience is a non-negotiable for the leaders of God's people. Obedience is a non-negotiable. Look down to verse 22. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Saul had repeatedly said that the animals had been spared so that they could be offered as sacrifices to the Lord. He thought that that would please God, but he was wrong. You see, while sacrifices were commanded in the Old Testament, they were not the most important thing. In fact, repeatedly in the Old Testament, we're told obedience trumps sacrifice every single day. But Saul thought it was the other way around. Saul thought that obedience was negotiable. Obedience is a non-negotiable. And what verse 23 seems to suggest is that a failure to obey yields an even worse kind of sin. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. You leave yourself failing to obey Saul, you'll end up seeking the help of a witch in divination, the very thing he does. You fail to wholeheartedly obey, idolatry will mark your family. The very thing we see in his daughter Michal, when she lays an idol, her idol, in the bed, pretending to be David, when soldiers come to snatch him. Saul's family bears the wicked fruit of an unwillingness to obey. Here's another warning for leaders. If we treat obedience lightly, ignoring the clear commands of Scripture, like the clear commands that came to Saul here, Again, it brings into question our suitability for leadership. We need to be especially aware of times that we excuse our failure to obey because it enables us to do something else that we deem to be pleasing in God's sight. That we overlook the paying of taxes so that we could give a little bit more money to church. Or we're willing to speed in our car, ignoring the speed limits because at another occasion we'll, um, we'll use our car to give someone in need a lift to church. God will not overlook our failure to obey. Obedience for all of God's people is a non-negotiable. And please don't go thinking that, oh, but, but, but that's just Old Testament stuff. 
we live in an age now when that's not the case. I'm sorry, you just don't know your Bibles if that's what you think. This is no more clearly illustrated that obedience matters for us today as God's people than looking at the Great Commission. Now, sure enough, obedience doesn't save us, but it is demanded of us by Jesus God's King. You know what it says in the Great Commission, the very end of Matthew, as Jesus speaks to his disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Obedience really matters for all God's people. Not just for leaders, especially for leaders, but for all God's people. Our obedience will never be perfect and flawless, but I think we do know when our obedience is wholehearted and genuine. And we can be sure that God knows. But Saul here, his obedience was laced with compromise and was treated as a negotiable thing. I think of one leader that I had the privilege of working with at a previous church. Um, at a time when mobile phones were less used, he would often use his work phone for personal calls. But he had pinned up on his notice board this little piece of card in which he would write down the date on which a call was made and the length of the call. And then at the end of every month, he would pay money back to church for the calls that he had made on the phone that were personal calls. He was a leader that saw that obedience to the command, do not steal, was a non-negotiable. And he lived it out. He lived it out. So there's two warnings for leaders. The warning that we're not to shift the blame and we are to see obedience as key. Our third heading is this, unrepentant and unrestored. Unrepentant and unrestored. And this is verses 24 to 35. And if anything, this is the most sorry part of the story. After Samuel's final accusation and clear declaration that the Lord has rejected Saul, it appears that Saul is repentant at first, but then on closer inspection, his repentance turns out to be phony. Look at verse 25. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. And now note in here, in this request, Saul is asking for two things. Forgiveness, forgive my sin, and secondly, Samuel, come with me. What Samuel does next, I think, exposes what Saul really wants because he just doesn't respond to the request. Instead, he ups and starts to leave. And as he leaves in a pretty tragic scene, Saul grabs hold of his robe and it begins to tear. It's a picture of the kingdom being torn from Saul's grasp. It's also a picture of God's word being broken. The tassels on the end of a robe were pictures of God's words to his people, reminders of that, the word that had been broken. And then in a terrifying word from Samuel, we read this. Look down to verse 29. He, that's God, who is the glory of Israel, does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. In effect, Samuel is saying, Saul, the game is up. Game over. God is not going to change his mind about the kingdom. It is gone. And having heard these words, Saul then again admits his sin. 
and makes his request, but whereas before he said, Samuel, come with me and forgive, now he just says, come with me, so that other people will think I'm all right. Look at verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me. He's not asking for forgiveness now. He's just asking that he would be honoured before people. What Saul wants is human honour, not divine forgiveness. And on close inspection, we find a deeply troubling detail that has run through the whole of the passage like a scarlet thread. Did you see how Saul refers to the Lord at the end of verse 30? So that I may worship the Lord your God, Samuel. The same line is repeated in verse 21 the Lord your God, and in verse 15, the Lord your God. What is clear is that Samuel really did know the Lord, and Saul seems ignorant as to who he is. Here is another fundamental failure in leadership in Saul. He refuses to repent of his sin, and he stands ignorant of God. So, leaders, are we listening to this warning? Are we, like Saul, unwilling to repent of our sin, to plead forgiveness, to turn away from it? And in so doing, do we show that we are ignorant of who God is? We need to be deeply concerned if we are more quick to seek human honour than divine forgiveness. Few things will do us and God's people greater harm than us being slow to repent and ask for forgiveness. Don't follow Saul's steps, please. And yet few things are more sweet than the leaders of God's people earnestly and frequently seeking his forgiveness. Not because they're in doubt that God loves them and is going to forgive them, but they're just all too well aware about the deceitfulness of sin that lives in their own hearts. And so they model what it means to repent and plead forgiveness from God to the churches that they lead and care for. We've heard numerous warnings to church leaders here, but each of them, please note, is appropriate for all of us, whether we have church leadership responsibilities or not. We need to be people who take responsibility for our failures, who take obedience seriously, and who quickly repent whether we're leaders or whether we're not. This account between Samuel and Saul ends with Samuel doing what Saul refused to do as he put King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, to death. It's symbolic that Saul no longer now serves as the ruler of God's people. It's a sad and sorry tale of a king who fails. And as we end the chapter, we should be deeply concerned that God's people need a better king. We'll meet him next week in chapter 16, David, who ultimately points us to the Lord Jesus, who we're told obeyed God to the very maximum and whose kingdom was not taken from him, but firmly established under him. As it said in Philippians chapter 2, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.
You give us a moment of silence just to think on the things that we've heard. Maybe things we know that we need to confess and ask God's forgiveness for. And then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we thank you for sombre bits of the Bible, like the bit that we've read tonight. Thank you that it highlights what is most needed in the leaders of God's people, to be those who admit our failings, repent of our sin, and strive to obey. Thank you, Father, for the measure to which the leaders at our local church live out those things. But we realise there's many yards to go to make us more like the Lord Jesus. Please be at work in us. And Father, for all of us, we realise that we have not obeyed as we ought, even this week. We've not repented as we ought, even this week. And we'd ask you to forgive us, because Jesus has died in our place. I'm going to invite you now, if you'd like to, to pray along with me the prayer of confession that we sometimes pray when we meet here in the church building. The words are going to come up on the screen. If you'd like to pray along with me as we confess our sins, then please do. The prayer begins, Almighty God. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our fellow men in thought and word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past, and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. We're going to continue in prayer now, praying for a, a couple of pastors, one local and one further afield. Father, we um, thank you so much for the churches nearby that we partner with in the work of the gospel. Thank you for the church at Fressingfield, for Fressingfield Baptist Church, and for Stuart Balmer, the pastor there. We ask that you'd continue to strengthen and encourage this gathering of your people. We pray that you'd make them strong and make them godly witnesses for the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray very much for Stuart, who was taken unwell this last week and spent a few nights in hospital, we ask our Father that you would help him now that he's home, that he would recover quickly. May he regain his strength as he works with less responsibility for the next week or so. And pray that you'd help both him and Andrew, his wife, through the uncertainty of what lies ahead as they wait for tests to work out what was wrong. And we pray that Stuart might be back to full strength soon and that the doctors would accurately diagnose what caused him to be unwell and need to go into hospital. Father, please would you return Stuart to service in that church very soon. And Father, we pray for churches around the world. There's many places where it is far harder to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. And we think not least of the country of Syria, a place where there were 1.8 million Christians before the civil war began, but now there are only 800,000. We pray that you would help and strengthen those Christians who still live in Syria. And we pray particularly for a man called Pastor George, 
who's pastoring a church there, please, our Father, would you continue to encourage him as his church has grown in recent months and years. Please, our Father, would you use him to be a godly servant of the Lord Jesus. We pray that for the physical needs of those Christians that they would be provided. We pray for believers who've come from a Muslim background in Pastor George's church to be protected from persecution and that they would be enabled to continue to live for the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that the hope of the good news of the gospel would go out through Pastor George and his church. We commit them into your hands. And all these things we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to have uh, one more song before we then have our notices and close our service. Uh, The song is a song that God would take up residence in every inch of our hearts. It's, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Um, Do feel free to sing along or just to follow along the words on the screen as you please.
Before we close our service, just a few notices to draw to your attention. The first is to mention our midweek meetings that are happening on Thursday during um, the morning and in the evening. We have our home groups. We will be studying the book of Philemon um, this coming week and the week following, um, which is the book that we're looking at at our morning services. So that's Thursday home groups. And then jumping on to Sunday, um, we again have services in the building at 9.15 and 11.15, with that 11.15 service being streamed online on YouTube. Um, we'd encourage you, if you can and you'd like to come to the building for those services, then please do. But please do make sure that you let us know. And the best way to do that is to either email me personally or get in contact via the contact form on our church website. Then next Sunday, 6.30 in the evening, our service again is broadcast on our YouTube channel at 6.30. We'll continue to work our way through the book of 1 Samuel and would love you to join us then. We're going to close with a prayer from the Bible um, and pleading for God's help as we head into the week. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.